My name is uh, Dr. Bill Fisher. I'm the co-coordinator of the colloquium series this year with my colleague, Lori Bell, and we're happy to have you here, both with the live audience here in San Jose, and we also have people joining us via Illuminate uh, on a sim simultaneous webcast. So welcome to that group as well. Our speakers today are two uh, executives, one current executive and the former CEO of Dialogue, which is one of the major information retrieval systems that our profession has been using, and technically the first uh, information retrieval system that became available to our profession. Uh, Dialogue got developed uh, by Lockheed Corporation back in the mid to early 1960s as part of Lockheed's uh, work with the uh, space program, uh, particularly with NASA. And Dr. Roger Summit, one of our speakers today, was with Lockheed at the time, and it was Roger's concept to be able to put together an automated information retrieval system. Roger still holds the title of Emeritus CEO with Dialog and is uh, going to be joining us today for this particular session. Roger has uh, degrees, three degrees from Stanford, a BA in psychology, an MBA, and a doctorate in management science. And in fact, uh, taught here in our business school um, early in his career before joining Lockheed. With Roger is Libby Trudell, and Libby is the, currently the Vice President for Marketing for Dialogue. Uh, Libby handles, uh, is in charge of Dialog's global marketing team, responsible for product marketing and new product development, and a number of other areas, including their graduate education program. Dialog was very aggressive in, in working with graduate education programs, specifically MLS programs when it first came out, making their system available to uh, a generation uh, um, countless generations at this point of information professionals. Roger and Libby will be talking about how Dialog got developed, and our format today is going to be a little uh, different from our, our usual colloquium format in that they're going to have more of a conversation than actually make a formal presentation. And so, in fact, Libby will be asking some questions of Roger, and then Roger will ask some questions of Libby with regard to where Dialogue has been and where Dialogue is today. So, at this point, let me turn things over to Roger and Libby. Well, thank you very much, Bill. Um, I'm going to start out by asking Roger a few questions about the early days of Dialogue, and then we're going to keep talking. Um, Roger, when you first thought about an Envision Dialogue, uh, was it in response to some known market need that you knew about? Well, not really. Um, I think the first inclination came when I visited the Stanford libraries as a graduate student, and I was trying to find some information in the card catalog. I was pawing through the card catalog guessing at different subject headings, hoping they might contain the information I wanted. And uh, I never found it. Asked the librarian, well, do you have a list of all the subject headings that I can glance at so that I can find what I want? And she said, no, we don't have a list like that for publication. So I left, uh, left there. And then later in the business school, we had a five-minute introduction to library. And uh, we saw chemical ab the printed publication, chemical abstracts, all over the shelves. And we saw uh, the Reader's Guide to Periodical Literature. And I thought, 
this is fantastic, you know, because it allows us to find what we need. Anyway, those, those notions gelled around for some years until I happened to join Lockheed as a summer hire between orals and dissertation, and, um, and I was assigned to, uh, to areas of information retrieval and simulation. Well, information retrieval uh, kind of took hold with a fellow, well, my boss, who was director of information processing, E.K. Fisher, wonderful man. Uh, let's see, and then, uh, well, uh, when the third generation computer technology came along, then the thoughts really gelled together that here we have an opportunity now to allow a computer to do the searching in, a, in an interactive way, uh, and uh, we should be able to develop a system for that. You know, it's hard to believe now that that was a completely new idea at the time. Um, so what were, the, what were the factors that allowed you to actually commercialize dialogue with that kind of theoretical beginning? Well, it went through a couple of steps. We thought we were in the systems development and installation business at Lockheed when we, we were fortunate enough to get the NASA recon contract, which allowed us to take dialogue many steps further. We went from a 360-30 with 30K of core, or 30 megabytes of core, I guess, to a 360-40 that had 40 megabytes of core for, wow. for, the, for the system. I think my watch has that much. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and, um, well, and, and, and we did a, the NASA recon contract, and we did an AEC recon contract, we did an ESRA contract over in Europe, and so forth, so we were in the systems development business. but. Um, Eric was a database that I knew we should have, have, and I talked with Lee Birch and all and a couple of other people back there. They said, we don't want a, a system on our computer. We want to search your computer. You put our database on your computer and we'll search it. So we, we suddenly got into the services business. And if any of you ever are in that quandary, the services business is the thing to be in. <laughs> you don't worry about restaffing, laying off from contract to contract and so forth. So that's really how we got started in the services business. Uh, we didn't get to commercializing for about three years from the ERIC contract. Well, <coughs> starting with ERIC, then, um, how did you build out the customer base? I mean, how did you identify who was going to be interested in using this thing? Well, it largely followed the databases that we put up. I mean, with the ERIC databases, our customers were uh, uh, educational, Office of Education supported librarians over the country. We then put up the, I don't know what the next one was, the AEC, AEC database, and we got uh, uh, librarians associated with it. Then we did NTIS. Anyway, these were all government librarians, so our first uh, mode of operation was supporting research librarians in government. So it was librarians from the very beginning who from were the, the core from, customers? From the very beginning with government databases. Now, Carlos Quadra, I mean, if any of you know Carlos Quadra, uh, sent around a questionnaire asking if people were interested in a commercial online retrieval service. Well, I happened to get a copy of that, and I took it to our management, and I said, hey, he's going to get ahead of us if we don't move. <laughs> so so uh, we then started uh, factoring uh, the uh, ways that we might in get into the commercial business. We already had a lot of customers, so it was a matter of opening up these government databases to other commercial customers, which we did, to industrial customers, and that was about 1972. 
when I had my first dialogue search in 1976, uh, done for me by someone um, who knew how to make the big machine work. So uh -huh. it was not long after. Well, um, so the 70s were the startup period, and then in the 80s, dialogue was a leader in the industry by, by that time. What were the um, management challenges that, uh, well, what, what do you think was the biggest management challenge you ever faced? Mm. Well, let's see, we had several. Um, it, well, within Lockheed, it was always getting money for fixed assets, I mean, to build out the computer system. And we were using data, data cells for our storage then, IBM 2321 data cells. Each data cell, about the size of a refrigerator, held 500 megabytes of data. And we had a couple of dozen of those. We took over half of Lockheed's cafeteria and several offices just for our storage. And it was a challenge to, uh, uh, to get Lockheed to allow us to do that, but we were making money, and so they did. I'd say that was a very big one. Mm -hmm. um, then um, later on, uh, as, as Dala continued to evolve, um, what would you identify as you know, something that um, was a, sort of the, the, the most important thing that you accomplished um, uh, in, in, the, uh, in, in, the, in the period of the 80s after Dialog became commercialized? Yeah, well, probably the... Well, let's see. In 1982, Lockheed decided to uh, set Dialog up as a wholly owned subsidiary corporation and named me as president, and that was very exciting to sit on boards of directors and things. Little did I know that they did that in anticipation of selling Dialog later. <laughs> uh, there's a rule that you all want to know is that uh, to, to sell or divest a corporation, you need to have five years of audited financial returns. Ah. So that's what they did. They, that's why they did it, and we might have anticipated that, but we didn't. <laughs> we just rolled along merrily. Uh, and the biggest thing, then, was the sale of dialogue. Uh, that, uh, should I describe that Sure, a bit? Just, just give us a flavor for... Okay, what well, it was, it was very important, because depending on who was the winner, I mean, who bought dialogue, I mean, our careers and the business itself, uh, uh, really was dependent upon that. Uh, when I'll mention some of the bidders and you'll realize what I'm saying there. Um, but um, uh, Lockheed, okay, we, we the management, when we first learned that Lockheed was going to sell Dialogue, decided to do an MBO, a management buyout. And so uh, Bob Simons and Bill Lawrenson and I, the financial officer and the legal guy and me, uh, met with uh, venture capitalists and all this kind of thing, try to learn how to put together an MBO. Well, we went round and round and finally came up with $200 million. We figured that was the most that we could offer and still remain profitable without too much debt service. We were, our sales were about $100 million a year at that time, so it was two times sales. Uh, I went to Vince Marafino, who was Lockheed's chief financial officer at the time, and I said, Vince, we want to buy Dialog. You know? He said, how much? I said, $200 million. He said, no. He said, we can get more than that. <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, we, we, we had a meeting, Then I had a meeting with the Lockheed, uh, the Lockheed management people where they described to me how they were going to go about it. They, they were going to do a, what's called a Goldman Sachs auction. Okay, and, and we did a little negotiation there, and I said, well, okay, but there are a few companies that I don't want to consider uh, in, in the purchase dialogue, two, actually. One is Maxwell, uh, and the other is LexisNexis. 
with Maxwell, I was concerned there is out there somewhere a, an unauthorized biography of Robert Maxwell that someone sent me. And, and I'll tell you, that was nerve shattering. <laughs> <laughs> and the other with LexisNexis, I figured that we'd just be kind of bundled down in some mm -hmm. small division. A lot of employees would be laid off and we didn't want LexisNexis. The other thing I wanted uh, was that we would write a purchase contract that would continue all employee benefits, would continue all employee employment, and not move dialogue out of Palo Alto. <laughs> <laughs> and they agreed to that. The management agreed to that. Uh, so we went into the we went into the auction. Uh, I guess I won't go into detail with that, but. It turned out as we went through round after round, I mean, the rounds are winnowing down. They're getting general ideas, indications of interest, and then uh, selecting from, we got about oh, a couple of dozen of those, selecting down to 15, and then asking them for a financial indication of interest. We're giving them more information each time. And then finally, we selected a, a small group of five that we invited to come out for a full day of question and answers and really detailed information. That was another reason I didn't want LexisNexis because we'd be giving away all of our competitive information. <clears throat> so anyway, in, in the end, uh, both LexisNexis and Maxwell were involved as potential buyers. And this happened uh, in, in, a, in an ironic way uh, Larry Kitchen, the president of Lockheed, called me into his office one time and he handed me a letter. And the letter was from a senator who at that time was in line to become Secretary of Defense. And I don't recall his name right now. But the letter basically said, please, Larry, just talk with Robert. You know, you don't, you don't have to sell the company to him, but just talk with him. <laughs> and Larry said, what should we do? <laughs> and I said, Larry, we'll talk with Robert Maxwell. <laughs> And with LexisNexis, uh, uh, the guy running it at Goldman Sachs was named uh, uh, Sykes, and his nickname was Tiger. So we call, he was called Tiger Sykes. And uh, Tiger talked LexisNexis into bidding up, into offering indications of interest higher and higher. And he said, we just can't ignore them because they may be the high bidder. So they got in and in spite of me. <laughs> anyway, then in August of 1988, we met down in Burbank, we had all the bids, and the, the premise on the bidding was that they could, it, the, the bids were, let's see, the bids were non-negotiable, that they had to accept our uh, uh, purchase contract, which actually Bob Simons and I and Bill Lawrenson wrote, uh, without, so they had to accept that without exception, and the, and the highest bidder was likely to get it, the highest credible bidder. Anyway, um, as it worked out, Knight Ritter was the highest bidder with a bid of $353 million. So uh, Vince Marafino was certainly right. They could get more than $200 million that we offered. <laughs> I'll, I'll, I'll say that Maxwell was right up there, I mean, very close to uh, Knight Ritter. Had Maxwell gotten it, of course, he went bankrupt shortly thereafter. And the last we heard of him, he was floating around in the Mediterranean somewhere, I believe. <laughs> he fell off of a boat, as I recall. So if, if that had been the high bid, we wouldn't be sitting here today, we, we, most likely. We'd be selling pencils on street corners. Yeah. <laughs> well, I just want to ask you one other question, uh, Roger, before we shift gears, yeah. um, which is 
Um, certainly during that era, era, Dialog was known as an innovation leader. We were always leading the market with you know, new technologies, new products. How did you, what, was the, what were the techniques you, you used to get the organization to stay on the innovative edge? Well, I guess some, a couple of them were philosophical. You know, I, I, I wanted to provide an environment, a physical environment, first of all, it was more ple equally pleasant or more pleasant than where people lived. And so we were lucky enough to get the, the uh, Palo Alto uh, facility in the Stanford Industrial Park, and it was just lovely. It was, true. Uh, that, that, that was a battle in itself, but we won't go into the detail. And, um, and I, I wanted to provide an environment where employees could fulfill their own endeavors and feel satisfaction from that as opposed to being directed here and there. And I think that was very positive in, in, uh, in getting work done. Well, uh, we I, was had, a, I was a beneficiary of that, so I would agree. <laughs> and and I had one other thing that I'd learned in an operations research course at Stanford. I don't know if anybody has gotten involved in that, but that was kind of mathematical management. And uh, we would investigate different business strategies, and there was one that always came out ahead, and that was called the dominant strategy. And that means that you you don't weigh this against that and say, well, I won't be quite so good in my offering, but I'll be better in customer service or so on. You just set up your organization to be best in everything. Hmm. I mean, more information, better prices, better customer services, and so forth. And that's what I tried to do throughout. I think that was important. Well, and I think that um, one of the things that, that made the company very successful was that was a balance between innovation on the product side and, and the technology focus but that was balanced by focus on the customer and doing the, doing the service, um, having the service be the, the best it could possibly be. Absolutely, and, and one point there uh, was philosophically, uh, profit was never an objective. Profit was a constraint in the company. We had to be profitable, but our objective was customer services, and it's kind of cause and effect. I mean, profit is not a cause. Profit is an effect and it's an effect from focusing on customer needs. And, and having a good product. And having a good product, <laughs> you bet. Um, well, um, let's switch gears a little bit and talk about sort of the, the next um, phase of Dialog. Um, so you left, uh, you, you were with Dialog for three years after we were acquired by Knight Ritter, and then you left in about 1991. 19, yeah, 1992 I 92. retired. Mm -hmm. But I stayed on with the honorable title of Chairman Emeritus of Dialog. He Dialogue. still is Chairman Emeritus of Dialog. <laughs> <laughs> and that, that the wonderful title with zero responsibility and zero authority. <laughs> uh, well, maybe I could ask you some questions, sure. Libby. And, uh, but because you've been through, well, the Knight Ritter and then the Maid and, um, and Thompson and now ProQuest, mm -hmm. well, how, how did the organization adjust to these different parents along the way? Yeah, each one was a very different um, type of organization. Lockheed was the government entity, and, and you know, I remember going once to a, to a convention with all the other marketing directors, and everybody else was a former military. <laughs> so I was like, uh, we, we, they, all, they definitely spoke a certain language. When we became part of Knight Ritter, 
Knight Rider acquired us uh, with a strategic intent to build out their, their electronic services. They, they, they knew that newspapers had to go digital, and they thought that by acquiring electronic companies, um, electronic services companies, they could help that process. So they invested in us. We grew very um, rapidly during that period because they were willing to invest more than, than Lockheed had been. Uh, so we, we made a lot of acquisitions. We purchased Datastar during that period. We built up a document delivery service, service called Source One. So we had to get used to being in this, being in this mode where we were, we were growing both organically and um, through these acquisitions. We learned how, to, how it is that you inter integrate another organization into the, into the company. Um, and, and Knight Rider at the time was also very, um, they, were, they were trying to be in the leading edge of um, a lot of types of display. They had a, a, a lab in Boulder, Colorado, where they were, they were experimenting with things that we now take for granted. But essentially, um, being able to display on a thin screen was, no one knew how to do that then. And, and, so, and they were spending many thousands of dollars to try to figure out how to do this. At the time, though, the technology wasn't there to make that cost effective. Um, in the end, uh, what I think is ironic about our alliance with Knight Ritter is that they had an advertising-based model. The newspapers are really about that. Uh, and we had a pay-for-services model. Um, and we couldn't figure out, we, I remember being in many management discussions, we were trying to figure out how to bring this together. We couldn't put our arms around what that would be. Um, of course, 10 years later, Google figured it out, um, but, but we, we, we just didn't, couldn't imagine how that could work. And later, it, it, around 87, when Knight Ritter decided to focus on um, its core business and just figure out how to digitize newspapers, they divested all their electronic services, including us. You know, when we were bought by MADE, um, we suddenly, Dialog Inc. was on the stock market as a separate entity with our stock being traded, and we, we suddenly became one of these companies that's like, okay, what are the quarterly returns? Well, the London stock market. The London yeah. stock market, yeah. indeed. That's, that's absolutely right. Um, made culture was very focused on technology, which was good. Made us, you know, we were kind of trying to be ahead of the technology, the web, and the internet at the time. They were not very focused on customers. <laughs> and what happened there at, during that period was we began to lose that edge of focus on customers and, and making sure that what we did was, was around building our customer base and making them happy. We were just trying to get ahead of the technology. And because MADE was undercapitalized to achieve that, um, we, uh, we, we eventually had to be sold because um, they, they could never get to where they wanted to go. Um, they couldn't achieve their vision for the technology breakthrough. Um, well, I, I think also, Libby, that they, I, I wish I knew the price they paid to <laughs> yeah, Knight Ritter for dialogue, but I think it was far beyond the $200 million that I felt was the highest viable price for a private entity. Well, entity it was certainly more than, than um, Knight Ritter spent to buy us in 1987. Yes. So, so I know that the debt service that yeah. they had was chewing up any margin That's that right. might have gone to... So the, so the lesson there is, if you buy a company, don't leverage it so highly that you can't service your debt. Yeah. <laughs> uh, fortunately, we were acquired by Thompson. And, uh, you know, kind of the, Thompson mm -hmm. is the other one that's a Lexus, in the LexisNexis world, big company, lots of different information services. Um, Thompson's environment was very planful. They were kind of the opposite of the made environment where it was kind of like, you know, aim, ready, shoot. You know, it was, we, we, they, we, nobody ever um, got ready at, at made. We just, just, we just did things and, and hoped it would work. Uh, Thompson's kind of the obvious, uh, opposite. They, they want to have everything happen according to a plan. And so that was great. We, we had great management um, leadership, great management training. It was a solid company. It still is. Um, but I think that the cultural difference there was dialogue has always been an aggregator working across disciplines. 
If you yes. come to dialogue, you can. It's all there. And if if you're doing research in a technology X, and there's ac actually something happening in tech, in subject Y that's relevant, you find it. Um, the Thompson view of the world is that there's financial data, scientific data, health data, legal data, and they don't really mix. And they could never. We actually reported to three different divisions in the seven years we were part of Thompson because they couldn't figure out where to put us. It's like, oh, they must be part of healthcare. No, they must be part of legal. In the end, we were part of Thompson Scientific, which actually was a good, a good match. But our best value as a multi multidisciplinary aggregator never was really realized in the Thompson environment. Well, and, and if I could comment on that, the, uh, if you're using information to solve a real-world problem, in most cases, it's not a single discipline area of, of information. I mean, it's cross-disciplinary. You want patents, you want market research, you want this and that, and, and some science and the rest. And, and, and as you were suggesting, Thompson didn't have that view of things. Well, and what they do is a very, a very high-end set of products around the workflow of particular uh, types of professionals, which is a great, it's, it's, it's a great business model, but it's a different model. So it didn't, it, we just didn't match well, uh, in terms of our strengths. And also in terms of customers, uh, when, when, when dialogue was dialogue, or before it, before it started having so many parents and became orphaned, 24% um, uh, of our business was in education. We had three divisions, really. We had business, we had science, and we had education. Mm -hmm. And 24% of that was there. But because Thompson had another company that was involved with the educational market, then we lost our education market, and that was 24% of our business at that time, and that was very sad. Well, and you know, that's an interesting segue to where we are now, part of ProQuest, and I'm sure most of the folks in the room know that uh, ProQuest's strengths are in the academic market. Um, bringing dialogue and ProQuest together under one umbrella and over time creating a combined collection that can then be made available to the academic side and to the corporate and business side I think is, is a great strength uh, or a great opportunity. And ProQuest is also a generalized aggregator that has multidisciplinary content um, yeah. Collections and our so our content collections are very, very complementary. So we're coming home. We're coming home. <laughs> I guess it feels like that to me. Yeah. Well, now something else that happened in the '90s, just after I retired, was the internet. Mm -hmm. The av advent of the internet. Yes, there was and, that thing. And, <laughs> and the content and the web, and nobody knew what to do with it. But uh, what, how did Dialogue deal with that? Well, um, one of the things about the early days of the internet is Dialogue was actually one of the very first dot-com companies on the internet. Um, we we put our um, put ourselves out there as a dot com. You could you could use it as an alternative to the dial up services at the time to access dialogue. But very often our traffic was refused by um, uh, by the servers that you, know, you had to pass through multiple services. That was what the internet was about because they they didn't want to touch that commercial traffic that was considered you know tainted traffic. So uh, we had to so we were right in there in the, in the early days kind of overcoming those barriers and of course. Very soon, commercial traffic became a norm on the internet. Um, I think we understood quite well um, in, in dialogue in that period that the web was a fabulous mechanism for offering applications, um, improving the interface, um, you, being able to get beyond the um, the command line environment that uh, that w that our mainframe environment was based on, and we offered I don't know I I would say um, at least a dozen web products over that period, many of which are, are still actually in use today. 
Um, so, so in those ways, I, I think that um, we were we were well aligned with that revolution. But what we had a very hard time coming to grips with was the issue of free content generally available on the web versus premium content available to the subscriber on on our services. You know, how how do you position those? those very different types of um, business models mm -hmm. against each other. You have to have really, really high value and really, really great service to get people to pay for something when they can get something that it's not as good, um, uh, but it seems pretty good, and it's free. So um, that has been a, a, that is an ongoing challenge, I think, for all commercial service providers today. And it's an ongoing challenge for the information professionals who are delivering those services mm -hmm. because their end users uh, are, have, have over the last 15 years been acculturated to think that A, it's free, and A, it's on, and B, it's on the web, and so, you know, why do we need this, this special service? Well, in dialogue, dialogue was never a business-to-consumer service. It was right. always a business-to-business -business service, and Google, at least at the start, was mainly a business-to-consumer service, and so they focused themselves in that way, and and very successfully, so I understand. I, I've heard that. Um, <laughs> so, you know, and, and by the way, there are several former Dialogue employees doing yeah. extremely well at Google, so um, <laughs> you can go both ways. But um, I think the, I, I think it was not a wrong decision to, to believe or, or to take the, the, the model that premium content, um, that there is a market for premium content and there is a way to um, position it in such a way that 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 buyers will will recognize the value, but it has to be because it saves time, it's more efficient. You truly get better and more complete results mm -hmm. um, than if you make do with with free content. Uh, well, it was, but it was certainly a disruptive period um, in, in, for our for our business. Now the uh, the role of the information professional has changed quite dramatically from that time to now. And how has a dialogue uh, adapted and supported that role? Um, well, one of the great things about the dialogue organization over, over a long period of time has been there are many of us who are information professionals, um, and I think that's helped us kind of be, kind of understand where that where that um, profession is going. Um, Twenty years ago, the typical information professional using dialogue was the expert who knew how to make this very complex and, um, and powerful system work, knew how to do it efficiently and did it on behalf of other people. So queries would come in, the librarian would react and provide the response back. That whole um, paradigm, I think, has turned around. And now, users are doing their own searching. They, they may come to the information professional if they need help or if they feel they're not getting a complete solution. But the information professional has had to redefine their role and become someone who markets what they do, um, who makes makes strategic decisions about the right information for the organization, interacts with management in order to make sure that management understands that um, that importance. It's it, I think it's a it's an evolving skill set. Um, I think we we have all had to up our game uh, as information professionals during this period, and the and the folks who are still doing it successfully really are in a different paradigm. Uh, than they were uh, than they were ten or twenty years ago. Um, certainly, we've had to by, by by offering end user services services that customers that end users in the out in the organization can use themselves. We help those information professionals um, 
with that transition. You know, we have to give them the right set of products. But in addition, we've, we've tried to provide services um, such as the Quantum II program, which um, is about leadership development training mm -hmm. for information professionals, yes, so that, um, that so that we, so that the skill set of you know I, I, being connected to the business and being strategic becomes part of of what they do. So I, I feel like that's been a real um, an important way in which we've reacted to the change. Well, how how do you feel that the information professional today should prepare for? the environment of today and the environment of the future? Well, um, be, be very aware not only of the, the technologies and the, and the um, products, which has always been important, but also have those management skills and that focus on, um, on, on knowing where, where the organization is going. If, if, you, if you are aware of where your organization is going, where your industry is going, whether it's academic or, or commercial, then you can be proactive in making um, making recommendations about um, how information can play a role in that. There, I was just reading a, a report back this morning from uh, one of our colleagues who was at a, a conference in Europe this week where they were talking about uh, not only is embedded librarianship, you know, we've heard that term now for some years, but not only has, has, uh, have the libraries moved out into the organization, but um, they are they are having to um, define their value into their organization in a completely different way by getting by actually um, outsourcing some of the things that they used to do themselves, which are less high value, so they could focus on the strategic activities, focus on, on being at the at the table when management is making decisions. They don't have time anymore um, to do some of the the operational functions that they had. I thought that was a fascinating um, commentary on where the profession is going. Um, and certainly, uh, products are going to evolve to make that to make that easier. You know, we're going to have um, it's it's going to increasingly be the case that you can get the same kinds of powerful, complete, um, uh, precise results using products like the new ProQuest Dialog and, and others that are out in the market. Um, so that it isn't necessary to spend all your time going to training classes and you know learning how to, <laughs> well, no, how no, to no. use dialogue. <laughs> well, and and, and um, ProQuest has now introduced a new platform, right. or a new product, really, ProQuest Dialog. And uh, how is that progressing? How, where do you see that going? Well, I should comment that um, people have been asking us for years when we were going to you know take dialogue to the next generation. We've actually uh, I was looking at this the other day and. Uh, I think we've made five efforts to replatform Dialogue in the past. Thompson invested heavily in trying to replatform Dialogue, um, and in the end, uh, it, it did it did not turn out to be a, a, complete, a, a successful endeavor. I think because the technology of the time just wasn't ready. So I think we finally have that confluence again mm -hmm. of technology and uh, market readiness, where where it makes sense to do this to invest in reloading all the content. Um, many you know, many billions of, 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 of records, um, and, and also um, providing a new interface. So it has been a long time coming. Um, we're just at the point now where the Datastar uh, customer base is being migrated to the new platform. We will migrate Dialogue next year. So um, it's, a, it, it's a very exciting prospect. I, I mean, you've seen ProQuest Dialogue. What's your impression of, of you know, some of the benefits of it? Well, the, the integration of Datastar and Dialogue databases, first of all, which is still a bit in the future, uh, w was a project that 
at least every management that I've been involved with undertook <laughs> since sure. the acquisition of Datastar and unsuccessfully until today. So that's to be very commended. And one of the things about the ProQuest dialogue that I think is fantastic is the elimination of connect time charges. Hooray, I should hear, <laughs> there should be applause and cheering in the audience from that. Um, the, uh, you wouldn't probably know the background of that, but I, I met with a fellow named Dick Collin back in, I think, 1971, and we were at a meeting, and he had a database called Pandex, which was a popular magazine-type database. And, and, and we thought, well, that'd be a good one to put online and sell. Well, Dick, let's talk about how you get compensated. So we, we went through a few different things, and we said, well, how about connect time? We'll just give you a percentage of our connect time charges. And that's where the connect time charging originated, and I've regretted it ever since. <laughs> and and uh, we've tried to get rid of it, but uh, finally Libby and company have uh, figured a way to do that. And it's so adv it's so desirable because no longer is a person constrained by the time they're spending doing the searching, which is bound to result in better uh, better search results and less frustration, less uh, watery hands, sweaty hands uh, <laughs> on the part of the searcher. So anyway, that, that, that's, that's the thing I see. What, tell us some of the other things that um, ProQuest Dialog is bringing. Well, um, the Certainly, we have what we had to bring with us is precision search and you know the the robust content that dialogue and data store offer. But um, it's one of the things that really makes people sit up and take notice is for years we've wanted to offer left hand truncation um, as in addition yeah, to right hand truncation. Mm -hmm. We have it, and um, we have the ability to have on the fly translation both of the interface and of the output. So if you if you're a French speaker and you're searching, you can uh, you can not only have your interface presented in French, but you can um, you can ask for the output to be translated um, right there on the fly. Um, there is, uh, I mean, of course, the, it's table stakes now, but dialogue has never had automatic stemming and pluralization and lemmatization. Those these things are just built into the new platform. So many of the things that made it that made dialogue powerful as it is user hostile. Um, because if you make a mistake when you're creating a dialogue command, uh, e even in our guided searches, this is our guided interfaces, this is true, um, the system retrieves, it provides you with nothing. Um, so uh, when you make a mistake in ProQuest Dialogue, it asks you, did you mean, which of course we're all familiar with from um, Google and other, other services, but it, it, it takes the best guess at what you were trying to do and allows you to, to correct as, and improve as you go uh, rather than have to get it right the first time. So there are um, there are lots of things that being on a on a contemporary yeah. platform allows us to. That do. that should extend the utility of the service to uh, well to casual users, occasional users, as well as perhaps to end users as well. Well, we certainly want uh, to see scientists and product managers and um, uh, patent examiners putting their hands on ProQuest Dialog themselves, and then coming back to their information professional um, colleagues to uh, to help them understand the best ways to do what they're doing and, and um, you know, what the right databases are. You know, it's still hard when you've got two or 300 databases. It's still hard to know. We've tried to make that easier, but I tell you that is one of the most difficult things that for end users is to figure out where, what resource do I start in. But, you know, because search is free, you can actually start in, in all databases and then just work your way through it. So uh, it's going to be a lot easier for the end users. 
Uh, thank you for what you've done already. Uh, it's a great presentation. Does anybody uh, in our live audience uh, here in San Jose have a question for our speakers? Hi. I'm just wondering if you see any new exciting um, technology developments in the research world that will have a big impact on both searchers and the kind of technology you're preventing or presenting, not preventing. <laughs> Sorry. Or hopefully not preventing. Yeah. Um, well, one of the things, I'll, I'll let Roger answer too, but one of the things that we are looking at is um, how do we make it easier to search across databases? That continues to be the thing that Dialog offers that is, you know, really, um, well, that aggregators such as Dialog offer that is really where our value add is. And yet each, each um, uh, database has its own thesaurus or its own coding or its own company name thing. Very, it's still very hard to make that come together. So I do think there are technologies out there. Um, you know, we think about it, it's not necessarily the semantic web technology, but there there are technologies in that arena that are going to help us with normalization of cross database searching. And I think that really is one mm -hmm. of the next big things. And as soon as we get through migration, one of the next things. Well, I, I'm on the board, or the advisory board of the Stanford Library, and so I'm somewhat familiar with the activity that is going on between the library and Google in terms of scanning millions of books and putting them in digital form. And I, I just think that is one of the most fantastic activities that any organization could undertake. And I'm just so sorry to see it all get wrapped up uh, so tightly in copyright and publisher and author issues because it, in, to my mind, represents such a major contribution to the world in terms of intellect and intellectual use of information. I'd, I'd call that my top one right now. That's pretty top. Yeah. I remember you were talking about the technology wasn't there, and there's three directors that I call that wouldn't produce their movies or direct their movies until the technology was ready. And that was George Lucas, Sam Rennie of Spider-Man 3, <laughs> and uh, also um, Cameron, David, Cameron for, for uh, the Avatar. And so is the technology ready? Uh, is the dialogue ready for the technology now? Because I think they need an update. <laughs> well, yeah, I, I mean, I think we, we're making that leap. Um, you know, we're leaping from 1960s technology to uh, uh, 2012 technology right now. Um, and well, it's a pretty dramatic process. Well, from a mainframe, you know, it started out on a 360-30 and, and stayed on mainframe computers until this current migration. Mm -hmm. Now it's on a server well, farm. Well, ProQuest Dialog, yeah, is a server farm, open, uh, open environment kind of a, of a place. I mean, and the beauty of that is that we can grow. We don't have to buy another mainframe every time we need to add more capacity or more storage. Um, we can grow organically or, or uh, incrementally. And incrementally. Mm -hmm. So I think that that's a huge benefit right there. And 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 of course the um, the ability. It, you know the the question about what are the key technologies uh, was a was a good one and and another one that comes to mind that is so enabled by this environment is linkage. We can provide instead of a drill down and kind of get your answer horizontally, we can drill out because every single piece of every record, if it's an, whether it's an index point or a company name or uh, you know imagine all the the structured data that Dialog provides is so leverageable yes. in this new environment yes. because every index point can. <laughs> 
can link you to all the other content that has an index point. In fact, one of the cool things in, in Procos Dialog, those index points show up over on the right-hand side in the search, um, in, in the search um, screen. So you, you actually see things being presented to you that, that bring you to other content. So, you know, I want to be, I want to be the, in the avatar of the information industry. <laughs> we have another question here. Hi, I was just interesting what sort of process you're going through in terms of uh, designing the search interface vis-a-vis -vis, like human-computer interaction and are you using um, uh, subjects to say, you know, and feedback from current standards, that sort of thing? Yeah, that's a really, really good question. And um, yeah, the, the one of the reasons that the development, uh, we were acquired by, by ProQuest about three and a half years ago. And at the time, we, um, we committed to this replatforming effort. The first 18 months uh, after we were acquired, we spent in um, user interviews, um, interactions and discussions about, you know, um, look, looking at what we have now, looking at where people wanted to go. So that, just gathering the user feedback about uh, what, the, what the needs were was a big piece of that, of that early process. And kind of in parallel, then also looking at what was possible um, in terms of the interface and showing wireframe uh, views of it and, and sort of quickly doing that, that prototyping mm -hmm. so that we weren't actually you know, building something um, that, 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 that would then have to be re-softwared or re, you know, re-engineered, but rather prototyping, prototyping, a lot of quick prototyping and then coming back um, to the to, to the, the the reaction panel to see uh, if that was working, and that's kind of the iterative process that we've gone through even since the, the early launches of the product, which was which was first launched about a year ago in uh, kind of a beta mode. Um, we have, we have a customer advisory board and some other user panels that we've used extensively, and it's really their 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 feedback uh, that's driven this. And there also uh, there's a usability team uh, that does the, the traditional thing, you know, where they, they watch someone work, they track where their eyes go, um, they can see that, that one of the, we, at one point we, we ended up moving the navigation filters to the right-hand side from the left, although everyone said they should be on the left originally, because that that's where people are used to seeing them, because people's eyes weren't, people were getting confused, they weren't seeing them readily where they were, so by just watching where people's eyes go on the screen during a, during a live session, you can learn so much about how to make something easier to use. That's good, that's good. Well, I, I think that takes care of the question, so I want to thank uh, Libby and Roger f uh, for being here with us today and giving us uh, some insight into uh, one of, I think, the, the key Silicon Valley information companies, and, and people may not think in terms of dialogue as they do Hewlett-Packard or Apple, but I think that's mostly because those first two were very product-based and people had that tangible thing that they could think of. But dialogue was, in effect, one of the first real information in companies within the information industry in this area. And uh, it was great that we got a, a look at how that company uh, got started and how it developed and, and where it is today. So thank you very much. Thank you, Bill. Mm -hmm. Pleasure.